Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Time for us to talk independent theatre. There's a production coming up called Reagan, which is running from the 18th to the 21st of March at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. It's a bit of a short season, so if the following conversation kind of whets your appetite and makes you want to learn more, then you should definitely book straight away. But Reagan is not written by one playwright. It's written by nine playwrights who've joined together in a, a kind of creative daisy chain, if you like, or a, a, a kind of theatrical take on the um, on a surrealist parlour game, Exquisite Corpse, to write a play together in a series of scenes. I'm joined uh, online by Vivian Newen, who's one of those playwrights. Vivian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. So... Talk to us a little bit more about this work. It, it's a take on COVID, both literally in terms of the subject matter, but also yeah. literally in terms of the way it was written by a, a, a group of playwrights in isolation. How did you get involved in the process and how was it pitched to you as a work? Yeah, so um, Benjamin Sheen, who runs Periscope, um, reached out to me and um, several other playwrights during COVID, I think the lockdown number six, to kind of pitch this play about, um, it wasn't really a COVID play per se, but something in terms of taking the format of this this classic text by Arthur Schnitzler. Um, he written this play in 1897, and it's like a daisy chain, two characters in one scene, and then one character from that scene moves on to another scene, introduces another scene, so on and so forth. And um, he pitched it in terms of getting a lot of writers on board because Periscope, if you've seen their last production, The Human Voice, and the one before that, Millennial Dreams, they ha they celebrate new writing and new writers. So for him, it's a very collaborative um, sense of, let's try this new project, try this new format. And what had happened was he uh, organised it very, very well by creating a really beautiful timeline of, us being organised into two weeks and each two weeks kind of write really like within that time pressure of these two characters that don't we don't really know who they are per se but we have like a working title like a writer or rideshare writer or um, a producer or a carer you know those kind of job titles to kind of create a sense of the play and because the classic text kind of explores Back then, it was about syphilis in 1997. We're like, oh, we don't want to make it about COVID, but we want to make it about something that is related in terms of the effects of COVID, which is intimacy, right? Like, how does it affect our connections to one another? And so, yeah, we passed the baton to each other every two weeks. And then by, November, I think it was from July, by the end of November, we have a play. So that was really incredibly exciting. It's yeah. a fascinating way to create a work. One of the other playwrights involved in the production, Georgia Simmons, also joins us. Georgia, talk to us about your experience of the writing in and of itself, knowing that you have to work with a character that somebody else has introduced, for example, rather than uh, just 
imagining scenes and settings and characters that are all your own. Is there an additional challenge in writing a play in that way of having to, I don't know, uh, take care of or be entrusted with somebody else's thoughts and characters and ideas? Hi, Richard. Great to be here. Um, it's an interesting question, and this is something that we discussed as a group of writers right at the start of the process. We had some conversation about how do we want to approach this, uh, what's almost like the etiquette of passing these characters on and of what you put in the scenes. And there were some writers that were of the view that, um, especially on the first draft, let's try and keep things as general as possible, as um, unspecified as possible, and that leaves more possibilities open to the next writer who comes along. Whereas my point of view, which I voiced at the time and then sort of implemented pretty strongly in my own scene, is actually I think the opposite. I think the most fruitful thing for the writer that comes after you is to completely disregard them and do something very specific because hopefully that specificity can be the seed of inspiration or can be a limiting factor that then pushes creativity in another direction. Um, but then in terms of the... I guess the almost the duty of care that you have for the characters that have come before and the character that you take on into your scene. Um, I felt like, I mean, it's interesting in the scene that I have, the, the character that I inherited is um, just this guy who sort of like his scene, his first scene is like a bit of a rom-com sort of flavor where he shows up at this person's door and, you know, asks for, you know, asks her to love him again or whatever. Um, and I think maybe if I was just watching a play or just reading a play, I might have been less sympathetic to this character and just been like, oh yeah, just like the straight romance lead, whatever. But because I knew I then had to write with him, I think I was a lot more empathetic to what he was going through and what that might feel like from the inside. And then that was immensely generative for my scene as well. In some ways, it sounds like the process you're describing is one that may be more familiar to television screenwriters, for example, or film writers, rather than people writing for the theatre, uh, in which... Because in TV, you're often working perhaps as part of a team, you're, you're working within the boundaries of what might be called a shared universe or a, or a cinematic universe. I've not heard of that done very often in theatre. Vivian, is it something that... Uh, you enjoyed the challenge of this kind of writing process? Um, you know, being a playwright is, is is a very solo thing, especially if you've written things yourself, by yourself. So it was a really great experience. For me anyway, I, I, I was quite daunted by it in the beginning, but having a lot of, you know, nine playwrights. We're not talking about two or three, we're talking about nine playwrights. A lot many cooks in the kitchen. But what ended up happening, especially when we were creatively developing it was that it, it ended up being quite collaborative and, and it, we just discussed the world and, and what could happen and our interpretations of these characters and how could we, it, it seems more like a TV's writer's room, but at the end of the day, it's still for the stage and how can we just change this, you know, keep get the audience guessing throughout the whole format because you kind of get the format already three scenes in. So how do we, as a, as a group of writers, try to, 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 I don't know, recontextualize this format, kind of revolutionize it in the contemporary sense. Um, so that was incredibly exciting. And I was very, very honored to be in a room full of people who were very open, who had their own opinions, as Georgia said, you know, some people had their, their own sense of what this could be. But at the end of the day, it was just ideas bouncing off the walls. So that was very fun. Very, very fun. 
And the idea of exploring the subject of intimacy in theatre uh, is a perfect and natural fit in many ways. Theatre is an empathy machine, for example, that allows us to identify with others, feel their, their feelings and their thoughts and their emotions. But we were either of you anxious or nervous about the idea of writing something about COVID during COVID or knowing that by now audiences might be just just a little over the idea? Oh, absolutely. I think this is a huge concern. And I think we are seeing now um, more than one wave of, you know, COVID plays, so to speak. Um, We were pretty careful to make sure that this was not a COVID play or not just a COVID play. And um, yeah, it's as you've said, Richard, there's sort of like, um, you could imagine that from one character to the next, COVID is being transmitted, but we don't really touch on that. The thing that we do touch on is what else is being transmitted from one person to the next. And usually that's intimacy, but we also spoke about how, you know, in the first three scenes, there's sort of like a loneliness that gets transmitted from person to person. And then in the middle section um, that was myself and Jean Tong and Amarachi Okaram, uh, there's like a selfishness that's transmitted from person to person. And we sort of thought about like what uh, what can be transmitted besides the virus. Um, and, you know, there are those little cues of like people, you know, are maybe wearing masks in one scene or maybe referring to being locked down in one scene. But we really were very conscious of that thing that you're saying, Richard, which is that people have either had enough of being immersed in it or they're not ready to think with it just yet. And so we've really put that at the periphery and centred, you know, what have human beings been experiencing during this time that is the same as they've always been experiencing and what has been a little different about that when it comes to the way they relate to one another. Yeah, and last three, which I'm in with um, myself, Jake and Ange, and um, Danish comes at the end as well. That part, that third act, the part of that is definitely about reflection and, and reconciliation things that maybe, you know, things that transmitted, that's not transmitted and the effects of, of that in terms of human connection. I think the effect of like being isolated, the effect of wanting something but not having it, the consequences is kind of what we had to explore in the third part. And yeah, and I think with we, as Georgia said, we were very careful not to make it a COVID play, but something in terms of like, you know, how, how isolated we are and the effect of, of touch and the effect of like physically being in a room with someone, I think is a huge, huge thing that it's, I I can see it's still playing out now, you know, the effect of, of lockdowns and such and such. So, yeah. In terms of being in the room, I feel almost sorry for your uh, director, Jessica Dick. Um, for any director working on a new play on the floor with the actors and often with the playwright in the room and this working uh, through scenes and cutting lines or adding lines, a very often a very collaborative and engaged and organic process, um, but dealing with the writer's ego. And I know some directors who don't want the writer in the room, for example. They go, right, here's the written text. Now it's over. You have to entrust it to me. Um, in this instance, Jessica is obviously dealing with nine writers and their egos. What's that side of the process been like? The the, the coming together collaboratively afterwards, once the work has been thrashed out and written and pieced together, what's the that side of the, the, the rehearsal process been like, the development process that will lead up to the performance of Reagan at, from the 18th to the 21st of March? Um, I guess I can only speak from... Um, sorry, Georgia, you want to go? Oh, no, you go ahead. 
Yeah. Um, I can speak from my point of view. Um, you know, there is nine cooks in, in the kitchen per se, but we did have a creative development in November as kind of together with Jessica involved as well to kind of get a sense of what the play is. And she works very collaborative, collaboratively to, with each writer. So for me, I, I, I'm, very, I'm very much loose with the text, you know, whatever, because it's important for the actors at the end of the day to feel what these characters are about and for them to embody it. So for me as a writer, whatever is needed in the text from her, from Jessica's point of view, it's easy for me to adapt and change. So that's my kind of point of view in that, that sense. But I, I'm sure, you know, things come up in the, in the rehearsal room and what we can do is just openly, openly communicate about it. I think also with having nine writers, I mean, there are playwrights out there who very rightly are extremely particular about their text and there can't be a word out of place. And a lot of what is done in the rehearsal room is to work that and to ensure that the text is highlighted in a very specific way and used in a very specific way. Um, but it's not really something that I think has come up very much in this process because it's not a univocal text. It's not a text mm -hmm. where you have this really strong authorial voice because there are nine of us and we all have different styles. And so it behoves all of us and the process for us all to be a little looser with the text. And as Viv said, we did have creative developments. We did uh, take rounds of notes and do new drafts, but there's been a pretty clear cutoff point where the writers are welcome in the rehearsal room, but the text is kind of at, at the point that it's at and the actors and the director need to be able to work with that in the way they need to work with that. Um, yeah. And I think we've all been pretty open to that and excited by that, honestly, to see what it becomes in practice. Well, I have to say it sounds like an exciting project and an exciting process. I'll be fascinated to see what the outcome is. So the play is called Reagan. It features nine playwrights in a, a kind of relay writing experiment, each writing a successive scene and inheriting a character and moving forward with the work. And it's exploring intimacy. So yes, you can you can view it as a COVID era play, but it's also, I'm sure, about many other things, the, the things that connect us, the things that challenge us, loneliness and so much more. More. As I said, the play is called Reagan. It's presented by Periscope Productions and is on at the Meat Market in the Stables at 2 Reckon Street, North Melbourne, from the 18th to the 21st of March. So it's a short season. Uh, and you can jump online, uh, go to www.trybooking.com forward slash BXLBB. That's trybooking.com forward slash BXLBB to book to see Reagan at the Meat Market. Vivian and Georgia, thank you both for joining us and congratulations on what sounds like a really, as I said, a really fascinating project and process. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Thank Thanks you, for Richard. Us. Thanks for having us. Triple R. My next guest is one of Australia's leading choreographers, but for her new work, she's bringing in a director and also bringing in text into her new dance work, which is called Flux Job. I'm joined on the line by Lucy Guerin. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. How are you? I'm extremely well, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about this new production, which was created during lockdown. So... Immediately, I'm curious to know how one creates and choreographs a dance work in lockdown. Was, were the early developments of this done remotely with you watching dancers in their lounge rooms, for example? Um, well, 
The interesting thing about it was that it was created over such a long period of time because uh, the rehearsals were postponed many times, the performance was postponed. Um, but I, I avoided the lounge room rehearsals because I just didn't feel like they were going to be productive for what I wanted to do. But we did have some rehearsals on Zoom to develop the script um, which was really interesting because it sort of affected the kind of sense of separation and, and disconnection that is a theme of the work. Now, in terms of working with a script, working with text in a dance work, is this something you've embraced before or is this a, a new element that you're bringing into Flux Job? It is something that has cropped up periodically throughout my career and it's, it's sort of interesting because I, I don't... I don't always enjoy text in dance works, but for some reason I just keep returning to it. I think it's this, um, it's um, the, the mode of understanding, the way that we, um, the way that we get meaning from text is just so different from the kind of um, uh, message that dance transmits to us. So uh, it's just a, sort of a way of trying to understand, I guess, the different. Um, modes of communication and what they offer an audience? Well, they are such very different modes of communication because when I watch a dance work, for example, the, the, the physicality itself is its own form of language, but it's not a, a clearly spelt out and articulated language. It's open to interpretation, for example. Text is very different, so much less ambiguous. That in itself is a fascinating a juxtaposition to explore in a work. Talk to us about negotiating uh, that process. Yeah, well, I think I think one of the interesting things about about the lockdown has been the kind of bringing to the forefront the idea of space in everybody's lives. So um, it means that I don't know. I feel like I have this more direct link with the audience because space is one of the things that is. Uh, really fundamental to a, a choreographer and and during the pandemic this kind of potential danger of proximity and the, the kind of awkwardness when you're greeting someone or you know always having to ask permission and kind of set boundaries I think have um, sort of connected us to an audience because I think when people look at a work now they're going to see space um, in, a, in a new way which I think it's really it's actually a really like useful thing for for me as a maker. Also just to pick up on that I that comment you made about negotiation which is I hadn't realized until you said it actually you reminded me of just how different our our interactions are our social and our physical interactions with friends and colleagues and and even strangers that that people who once would have automatically moved in for a hug for example now ask whether it's okay to shake hands or to kiss or to hug that process is new to us is that something that you are consciously exploring in the work uh yes it is and i think that sort of awkwardness about you know some people go in for the elbow bump. Some people go for the, I don't know, the kind of air hug. Some are, some are kind of going for that. There's this kind of clumsiness and awkwardness around physical connection. And, um, and it's, you know, it, it's in the, in the studio as well. I, I, I feel that, we, you know, the dancers were often wearing masks and um, 
the the idea of very close kind of you know often we'll have we wouldn't think twice about sort of creating a a tight knot of you know moving bodies um but it it's interesting even for us as people working with our bodies that that felt um uncomfortable so um the dance starts very much with the all the performers separate and they all have a um a speaker attached to their body so they and they all have a different sound score coming out of their individual speakers so they're starting very very separate and um in their own lights so uh and the piece sort of develops from there and kind of has this sense of switching between different modes um between text um and between these kind of between improvisation and set movement which i guess for me represents the way we had to shift and adapt to different formats and contexts what you've just described that sense of discomfort around contact and physicality and touch was that something you consciously wanted to once you recognised it and identified it in the, the development process, was it something you consciously wanted to bring into the work and retain or was it something that you tried to push away in order to get past that and focus on or, or perhaps even return to uh, a choreographic and physical freedom that we had pre-COVID? Oh, no, I think it, it remained very much... The, the themes of the work were really around this sense of separation and 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 disconnection and the inability to really sort of make contact both both physically and emotionally and you know just in everyday communication so uh that that I, I didn't really start out that way I have to say but just that whole experience of the last two years um and shifting from a lockdown into, you know, being able to start rehearsals like we had these periods of time where we were sort of building towards a show and we we, we actually got to premiere a show for one night um, and then that was closed down and then that happened again and then... Um, so it's, it's just this sort of sense of building anticipation and then um, having that, you know, having the rug pulled out from under you many times I think um, had a big, a big influence on the work as well and also I think just um, being indoors so much and then you know you get to go out for your hour of exercise or, or however long and how different everything looks how you kind of zoom into these little details like I, I found myself sort of gravitating towards a leaf or a or a um, you know piece of a building or I just saw things out outside that I just had never seen before because of um, this different perspective that I think the pandemic um, engendered. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with choreographer Lucy Guerin, whose company Lucy Guerin Inc. is presenting a new work, Flux Job, at Arts House at the North Melbourne Town Hall from the 16th to the 20th of March. Lucy, you mentioned that sense of, of separation uh, as kind of in the, the process of making the work. Given that the challenges of bringing people together physically 
the, 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 the concerns around touch and so forth in the early stages of development were so strong. At what point were you consciously bringing text into the work and, and bringing in uh, theatre maker Adina Jacobs, who's been the dramaturg on the production? Was text something that you wanted to bring in from the get-go with this work or did you realise that because of those challenges around... Uh, discomfort and the inability to make physical contact that text needed to play a, a role in this work where it doesn't in some of your other works? Um, interestingly, I did want to work with text. That was one of the core ideas of the work. Um, I, I had this, this thought about this kind of very abstract, improvised work that sort of suddenly plunged us into almost like a, a play in the middle of it. Um, and and just wanting to work with that kind of perceptive shift of being lost and seeing all the multiple layers and complexity of a dance work, and then and then being um, uh, confronted with with this kind of quite sharp instrument of language. Uh, but the way that it made its way into the work is very very different, and was very influenced by the script developments that we had. Um, over Zoom and that kind of slight awkwardness of trying to um, say, so, trying to get what you want said in the context of this very flat um, format where you you sometimes don't know if you're interrupting, you don't know if you've sort of left a too long pause. Um, so I think aesthetically and kind of timing-wise, um, yeah, the, this... The, the pandemic and the experience of trying to keep keep in touch, keep in communication, has had a big influence on the way that we've used text. And um, Adina, as dramaturg, has been incredible in this process. I think she's a um, a theatre maker who does who doesn't always use text that much. So she has a real sense of um, theatre as a place that includes text, but also beyond um, that, the actual kind of, I guess, theatre, it's almost like a theatre machine. Um, and so I, I felt like I could really um, communicate with her about that, what I, what I was after in terms of that shift into, um, into different modes of understanding. Well, given some of the, the physical imagery that Adina has created in her work over the years, it seems like a, um, a very logical pairing to bring her into, kind of, uh, into the development and the creation of this work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just been a real pleasure to, to work with Adina. Um, and just to have her expertise in, in helping the dancers and, and supporting them in in speaking and articulating text because we we didn't we didn't necessarily want the text to be delivered in the way that a trained actor would deliver it but at the same time uh, you know they need it needs to be able to be heard and articulated and the, the tone of it needs to become something so that's that's a very specialized area and it was just wonderful to have Adina helping with that 
Lucy Guerin Inc.'s Flux Job is running from the 16th until the 20th of March at Arts House North Melbourne Town Hall on the corner of Errol and Queensbury Street. You can book by going to www.artshouse.com.au. You can also call 9322-3720. That's artshouse.com.au or 9322-3720 to book to see Flux Job from the 16th to the 20th of March. Lucy, just before I let you go, uh, I was wondering if there's any possibility that we may see Pendulum return at any stage. That's the work that had one night only performance as part of Rising last year before we were plunged back into lockdown. I found it a, a hypnotic and fascinating work and I'd love the chance to see it again and for more other people to see it. Any possibility that Pendulum may return? Oh, yes. I think there's there's possibilities, definitely. It's quite a it's quite a hard work to remount, but um, we have had quite a bit of interest um, for, from those people who did manage to catch the one night of pendulum. So yes, we're still we're still working on that. And Matthias and I are thinking of working together on a on a slightly different version of it as well. So yeah, look out for pendulum. I'll keep my eyes open, and if people want to know more about. Lucy Guerin's work and her company, Lucy Guerin Inc. Just jump online, online lucygarinink.com. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thank you, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's time for us to have a chat now about visual art and in particular a major new exhibition that is now open to the public as of today at the National Gallery of Victoria, the NGV International in St Kilda Road. Queer Stories from the NGV Collection draws upon a vast body of work collected by the NGV over the years and tells a story or, or tells shows a representation of different meanings of queer over the years, work by queer artists, work by straight artists that may have queer themes, for example. It's rich and detailed and fascinating and will deserve repeat visits. I'm joined on the line by Ted Gott, Senior Curator, International Art, one of, I believe, Ted, five curators from different departments who've come together to work on this show. That's right, yes, there were five of us, so the Departments of International Exhibitions, uh, Australian Art, Contemporary Art and Indigenous Art, as well as my, my Department, International Art. Which says something about the, the size of the undertaking and the size of uh, and the challenge of representing something as amorphous and ephemeral and shape-shifting as queer because it has so many different kind of ways of being defined. For you yourself, how do you think about queer as an exhibition title and as a, as a subject for an exhibition? We chose the title for the exhibition because of the all-embracing nature of the term queer. Yes, in, in times past... Not too, not too uh, far, far in the past, it was used as a term of abuse, but then it was reclaimed 
by the LGBTQ plus community as a badge of pride and an emblem of, of difference, um, and it, because it embraces a range of attitudes, possibilities, sensibilities. So it was because of its broad reach and its all-inclusiveness that we used it as the title for the exhibition. And it embraces, um, you know, not just artists who identify as queer or gay or lesbian um, or um, uh, trans. Um, it embraces um, artists who may be heterosexual but are addressing queer topics. So, for example, you know, all of the portraits in the exhibitions of famous queer writers uh, like like Colette, um, like um, uh, Somerset Maugham, Tennessee Williams. You know, the photographers don't have to be queer, but the subjects are definitely um, queer historical figures. So it's incredibly broad, as you say. The earliest works in the show come from ancient Egypt, 600 years before the birth of Christ. And the most recent work in the exhibition is a fantastic video um, made uh, just a couple of years ago by um, uh, the trans artist Tourmaline in New York City. As I kind of ranged and voyaged through the exhibition last night, which covers the entire third floor of the NGV. So there's a lot to see, and I urge people to take their time and think about a return visit in order to do the exhibition justice. But, Ted, one of the works that most caught my eye uh, is a fairly unassuming self-portrait of... J.S. MacDonald, uh, a lithograph from 1922, James Stuart MacDonald being the director of the NGV from 1936 to 1940. Now, this is a man who called modern art... Uh, well, said that modern art was created by degenerates and perverts uh, and that he uh, complained about women and, in particular, queer artists as, of, uh, as being instigators of aesthetic decadence. I love the fact that his exhibition is kind of gazing sourly out at this glorious queer exhibition, he'd be rolling in his grave to think that the NGV, which he once directed, was presenting such degenerate filth. He would be absolutely rolling in his grave and um, uh, he would not recognise uh, Melbourne today, he would not recognise the NGV today. He absolutely, he declared that all modern art from Monet onwards was what he called putrid meat made by degenerates and perverts. If he couldn't cope with uh, Monet and Vincent van Gogh, he certainly couldn't cope with what's, what he's surrounded by in the queer exhibition. And he's in a sort of a rogues gallery, a gallery that we've painted black, which is looking at the dark history of prejudice and persecution. Um, so we have in there, because we have a great a collection of historical portraits, we've got King Henry VIII, who introduced the infamous Buggery Act in 1533 that led to the execution of gay men for centuries around the world, wherever British law came with colonisation. Uh, so J.S. MacDonald is in there. We're exposing our own dark history. Uh, it's warts and all, the exhibition. Uh, so there is that one dark section, but there is also great joy and creativity and eye-popping um, candy in other parts of the exhibition, as you would expect, you know, in a show uh, that embraces queer culture and queer expression. There's a wonderful uh, section that simply looks at camp, which is all about colour and creativity and flamboyance and, you know, why the hell not? <laughs> One of the things that I enjoyed so much about the exhibition was seeing works... Uh, from across time, placed in a in a queer context. So we have um, 
work from ancient Greek, for example, which acknowledges the homoeroticism that's present in, uh, in, in Greek myth and Greek stories. Uh, we have more recent works uh, from the, the 20s, 30s. Uh, the artist Duncan Grant, for example, there's a, uh, a large work of his, The Bathers, which is just very physical and very striking. And then in the next gallery, um, almost in some ways referencing the bathers or, or acknowledging it, Tracy Moffat's Heaven, which is an almost voyeuristic film that uh, Moffat made of surfers changing out of their bathers into their, into their clothes, for example, that kind of awkward dance of kind of like trying to pull your shorts up under your towel without exposing too much. That sense of, uh, of a, a historic thread that runs through the exhibition and shows us so many different facets of queer life, queer identity through the ages. It makes it such a rich exhibition to explore. Uh, absolutely, and I'm really glad that you appreciate that. We, we've worked very carefully with our exhibition designers and the whole curatorial team, um, myself, Amy, Miles, Megan, Pip, uh, to place every item in the exhibition in a absolutely precise visual order. So you get these wonderful juxtapositions. One of the ones um, that we're particularly pleased with is, is putting a uh, 5th century BC marble torso of a Greek athlete. Um, beautiful example of ancient Greek obsession with body culture. We've placed it next to a marvellous Jean-Paul Gaultier uh, shirt from his Pinup Boys collection um, of summer 1996, which uses the same uh, rippling torso in, you know, in the six-pack um, of chest muscles as seen in the Greek sculpture. And you get, you get to see these hung side by side, and you get the front-on view as you walk into the gallery. Then when you come around, you get the back view, and you get the back muscles and the buttocks of both the, the ancient Greek marble and the Miyake top paired off. It's, it's, it's just a, a marvellous um, uh, buttock salute <laughs> to the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the uh, longevity of queer culture. <laughs> and that longevity is so fascinatingly represented, as we said. We sometimes tend to think, perhaps, of um, uh, same-sex desire and queer identity, or gay and lesbian identity, or homosexual, whichever word you use, as being a relatively recent Phenomenon, and certainly the the notion of perhaps a, a self consciously lived homosexual identity is a more modern development. But same sex attraction has existed yeah. throughout civilization and society for for millennia, and the exhibition references that and celebrates that. Absolutely, and, and there it's particularly rich. Um, we have two galleries devoted to uh, the culture and stories of ancient Greece and Rome. Not all the works are made in those times, but we've got marvellous works from 6th century BC, you know, wonderful Greek vases, but then we've got representations of stories from Greek and Roman literature, particularly Homer's Iliad, uh, made from um, the um, 16th century onwards. So, you know, we tell the story of the separatist uh, uh, tribes of, of Amazon women. We tell the story of the love affair of Achilles and Patroclus from the Trojan War. And you see there a whole panoply of Greek and Roman deities who were all pansexual. So, you know, that just suggests that in a culture where the gods and goddesses who are worshipped are, are, have, have sex with both sexes, um, 
uh, with no questions asked, then it's no wonder that the culture that worships them uh, doesn't have an issue with similar um, sexual freedom in, in its own societies. So that's you know, quite instructive um, for modern viewers, I think. Obviously, the exhibition then also incorporates other other aspects, more recent aspects of queer life. There's some incredibly powerful and, and for to me, very moving works by David McDermott, for example, uh, including uh, the piece Plague Boy, which is uh, um, a, a, a stylized version of what could be a magazine cover uh, for a magazine called Plague, Plague Boy rather than Playboy. So Plague Boy created during the AIDS crisis and, and with a, a satirical uh, note on in the same way that you would see headlines on, I don't know, uh, any other magazine today. Uh, this has headlines such yes. as tips on remembering your own name, referencing the dementia that would be suffered uh, by some people living with AIDS. Um, 40-ish, fabulous and full-blown. It's a really, it's a dark but satirical and deeply powerful and deeply moving work. Absolutely. And another one of the the headlines on that front cover is Half Dead and Hot. Um, So David was um, an artist who was um, HIV positive himself and sadly he passed away from age-related complications in 1994, the the year after he made this uh, faux um, idol cover, Plague Boy. And what he was trying to bring to people's attention was the fact that if you were HIV positive, um, it didn't mean that automatically you became non-sexual. And he was addressing the fact that um, you still have a sexuality after diagnosis um, with the illness, or you did have in those days at a time when there was no known um, cure or preventative measures. These came in in late 95 um, and stopped the uh, awful terminal nature of um, the HIV AIDS pandemic. Uh, But um, so what he's doing is he's taking um, a sexy gay man who is infected with the virus, but pointing out that he's he is still hot. <laughs> he still has a whole lot of life to doing, uh, to to be living, even in the face of the health issue that he's um, uh, addressing. And this, you know, it's black humour. Uh, it, it's meant for um, uh, a, a, an audience that is dealing with the AIDS crisis um, in the early nineties, and um, you know, it was such an awful time that cathartic black humour was one way of coping with things. And it's also a a nice, I guess, through line in terms of your own career as a a curator in the the Australian gallery sector Um, uh, and hearkening back to the exhibition Art in the Age of AIDS, for example, at the, what, the NGA back in 1994? Yes, yes. Um, I did that exhibition in 1994, um, and we had uh, works by 108 artists worldwide in the show. Um, and that was a very um, powerful and moving exhibition. Uh, and it became um, almost like a centre of visitation for people whose lives had been affected by the uh, HIV, AIDS pandemic to come and find images that would allow them to feel that other people shared their grief and loss. So it became quite... Um, uh, a spiritual experience. Um, so there are sad aspects to our current exhibition at the NGV. You can't ignore the dark years of the 80s and uh, the mid-90s when that pandemic was raging around the world. 
but it's been a real pleasure to work with my colleagues on so many other aspects of the exhibition to remember that but also to work on so many other aspects of the exhibition that are more joyous and celebratory um, and uh, provocative and uh, you know some of it quite frankly naughty <laughs> <laughs> and and covering such an, an array of artistic forms and materials and again important to stress that these works that are on show in the exhibition Queer, Stories from the NGV Collection, on now until the 21st of August at the NGV, all these works are from the gallery's own collection. It's not like uh, a big exhibition where you might uh, expect to have seen works that have been borrowed uh, from other institutions around the country or internationally, for example. This body of work uh, from some of it from the archive, some of it more visible and, and more familiar to visitors, drawn from the collection of the NGV itself over many, many decades. That's right, that's right. And that, that's just the wonders of doing a thematic show from a collection as rich as the NGVs. You know, we have close to 80,000 works in the collection. And we, uh, the five curators, when we were working on the show, we trawled through those 80,000 works looking for queer stories and queer attitudes and expressions. And when you bring it all together in a thematic sense, it just shows you why the NGV is such a wonderful uh, and majestic collection and one of the greatest art collections in the world. Um, it's been an absolute joy to combine so many aspects uh, of the collection in this exhibition. We've got works in every conceivable media drawn from every uh, collecting department um, in the NGV. And it's, it's just a, it's a total kaleidoscope. Um, and the entire exhibition is joyous eye candy. So, you know, um, even if you don't read a single label, uh, there are hundreds of labels that tell you all the stories. But even if you don't read a single one, you will have a fantastic time just walking around, uh, drinking in with your eyes the, the beautiful things that are on display and the surprising way that they've been placed against each other to create uh, a dialogue um, and uh, hopefully um, a spectacular visual experience for visitors. I certainly think it's spectacular. I had such a great time looking at the, the, the exhibition last night. I'm definitely going to go back. I'm definitely going to be dragging friends. Uh, next time I go, mental note to self, don't leave your glasses in your backpack in the NGV cloakroom so you can actually read kind of the panels uh, of the work rather than squinting awkwardly at them. But it's a beautiful exhibition. Uh, it's rich and bold and, and I'm sure will provoke occasional shock or outrage but delight from others and tears from some others as well. There's also a complimentary program of events, so discussions and conversations and talks. If you go to ngv.vic.gov.au forward slash exhibition forward slash queer, you'll find out the details of the exhibition. You'll also find out the details of all those complimentary programs as well. Ted, it sounds like I think this is going to be... Uh, I hope, at least, a hugely popular exhibition for the NGV. Oh, look, we hope so. It's on for six months. It's open seven days a week, 10 to 5. So you can just pop in, spend 20 minutes, look at one section, or you can come um, and consume the entire show until your eyeballs are bleeding. <laughs> we have a couple of chill-out lounges where you can sit and relax. And also, can I suggest... 
don't just bring your reading glasses so you can read the labels. Bring your mobile phone because you can scan QR codes and you can download a full audio guide narrated by us five curators. And you can also download a podcast in which uh, a series of uh, artists whose works are in the exhibition are interviewed uh, by the wonderful Courtney Act. Queer Stories from the NGV Collection is on now until the 21st of August at NGV International, 180 St Kilda Road. I absolutely wholeheartedly recommend it. Ted Gott, Senior Curator, International Art at the NGV, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 